as we talk about the riches in Christ. And folks, I'm just going to tell you this passage, it's a wonderful passage, but in the English, it's, it's kind of subtle. And so I'm going to try to, you know, accentuate what, what the Word of God is talking about here, but you just kind of need to keep your ears open today and work with me because there, there, there's things we're going to be looking at that I think are going to be very encouraging, but, but uh, I, I want to make sure that I convey it well, and I've got X amount of time and want to do it well, but I need you to help me today by just kind of connecting those dots. But as we do that, I want us to just review for a moment. Last week, we took a high-level look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul's primary purpose in writing the book was to warn and encourage the church about false teaching that was threatening them. And so he begins his letter in chapter 1 with with, uh, some warm thoughts, some ways that he's praying for them, talking to them about the lordship of Christ and and different things. And then he transitions over now into this this warning. And so um, we gave a broader view of what the New Testament says about false teachers um, it is a very important uh, topic and a very repeated topic in the New Testament. We saw that, and you only saw just a piece of it. And nearly every book of the New Testament has at least mentions um, the, the, the uh, topic of false teachers, some into great detail. So by looking at what Jesus said and what other New Testament writers said about false teachers, we were reminded how dangerous and how harmful false teaching can be. And I just want to reiterate, folks, Nothing about teaching that goes against Christ, that goes against the Word of God, is there for our good. All right? It is there ultimately for our destruction, for calling us away from from the one that we are to serve. And so, uh, you know, we're warned. We're warned by Jesus. We're warned by his apostles. We're warned by other New Testament writers. And so then as we kind of transition, I I mentioned last week we're going to look at Uh, these first 10 verses in chapter 2 a little more specifically. And so we're going to look at verses uh, uh, 1 through 4 today. And so let me go ahead and read that passage for you, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this as we go on. So it says here, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, and this is Colossians 2, 1, and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen me, my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the fullness, I'm sorry, the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What we see here is that Paul was conflicted. Paul already described how dedicated he was to their spiritual growth. We saw that in the previous chapter. But now he shares his emotional struggle for them. He wanted to be there in Colossae. He wanted to minister to this group of believers. And let's face it, Paul's maturity, his experience, would have been invaluable to have been able to be there and to minister to them directly. As it says, he has never seen them face to face. We know that Epaphras was the one who took the gospel to them, and so on. He also includes Laodicea, which indicates that this was a regional problem. If you remember, there was Areopolis, I believe that was the city, Laodicea, and and uh, and um, just lost it, Colossae, <laughs> that that were all in this in this valley, and so 
he was targeting now this entire area by talking about Laodicea and saying, you know, this is something that is a threat. And so he wanted them to also share this information with the Laodicean church. But what I'm encouraged about, and what I think the Colossians were encouraged about, is that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this letter and, tell, and tells them what he cannot tell them in person. He uses a language of progression to take them through several steps of encouragement, several steps to talk about this conflict that he has. So the first thing we want to look at today is the value of Christ's church. Again, Paul desired that the church be encouraged. Paul is not trying to encourage them about his conflict. Okay? Instead, Paul wants them to know about what is conflicting or burdening him. His burden is that they, be, is that they effectively withstand the false teaching that is a threat to their walk with Christ. So it wasn't about Paul's emotional state. It was about why Paul was in that emotional state. That's what he wants them to understand. This word of encouragement is a comfort or a settling of the soul. That's what this word encouragement means. So when we think about this idea, it's in other parts of the New Testament, it's about the, the encouraging is the building up. This is more of, of a consoling type of ministry. And so this is where he starts off, that he, he wants to see the church consoled or, or, or something to that degree, to that effect. This word means to call or come alongside of. Like someone, like when someone has hurt their leg and we come alongside of them and we put their arm over our shoulder and we walk with them, we help support them. That's the idea here. And we've all either experienced that ourselves or, or have seen that picture. So Paul is conflicted that they would have a comforted heart. That's what's eating at Paul right now. He really wants this for them. Because he sees the threat. But it's also very much about how they love one another. We know that Christ loved us first. And that he is the source of this love. But Paul wants their, sees that their encouragement comes from their love for one another. We cannot miss Paul's message in the, to the church. Love is what brings encouragement. Um, we, uh, we just came from the Ephesians passage, but I want to go back there again and concentrate on verses 11 through 16 as a reminder. And we'll, we'll get back to this passage another time too. But way back, what I mentioned was is that the, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians are very similar. Their, their emphasis is a little bit different um, and, and, and how it's written, but they are very similar. They both talk about similar topics. But looking at verse, starting in verse 11 again, he, Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And this here is that word, that building up, okay? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, Again, that's the idea of maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. From whom? From Christ. 
the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building up of itself in love. All right. So as we take a look at this, again, we see this is a parallel passage. I want us to look at one more passage together as we're kind of putting this idea together. And it's 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. Uh, there, there should be some, some impetus, some, some emphasis on our love, right? Love one or fervently with a pure heart, having mourned again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, we could easily expand on this subject to how we are to love one another, but we will save that for another day. We could, we could go to passages and we could talk about love for a very long time. But I want us to stay on point as far as what Paul is trying to do through this, about what he's trying to accomplish through this purpose of writing. But I do want to stress that we are to have a self-sacrificing, giving love toward one another. That's what that's about. I also want to stress that in this passage, it is a continual action. It's something that, that is supposed to keep on. It's not just a one-time thing, right? Uh, we, we've all heard the very tired analogy, uh, you know, uh, illustration of, of uh, you know, the husband who's, who basically tells his wife, you know, I, I love you, and I'll let you know if that changes, right? You know, like he says it once, you know, it's like, no, that's not, you know, we, we need to continue to do that, all right? Now, in addition to that, I want to note something. We need to receive the love given by others. Now, why am I talking about receiving love? Isn't that kind of selfish? It doesn't sound very spiritual. Because love given must have a recipient is why I want to talk about this. If Maggie or I insisted that we could only give love and not receive it, that would be a very unhealthy relationship, Right? No, I'm sorry, you, you cannot express your love or show it to me in any way. It just goes one way. You know, that, that's, not, that's not very healthy. Not only are we built to give and receive love, but our imperfections and limitations make it essential for us to be loved by others. Love is a shared experience. Just like we're talking about this idea of comfort, of encouragement, we're coming alongside of them, of someone, we're trying to help them along, there's a recipient that is here. The whole Bible is a testimony that God desires to have a reciprocal relationship with his people. Now, we need to be clear. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need a relationship with us, and he doesn't need us to love him. Obviously, he loves us. But yet, at the same time, he does receive love from us. He desires that fellowship. Now, I'm stressing this for a couple of reasons. The biggest reason is I think that our American ideal of self-reliance gets in the way of what God intends. Okay? Because here's the thing. If we're telling ourselves, we ought to love one another, and then we try to love somebody, we try to do something for them, we try to encourage them in some way, and, and there's this standoffish, I got this, constantly, that's going to break that down. So what, what I'm doing is, is just kind of drawing this parallel lesson because I think that's something that we, I struggle with it, but I think, I think that we generally struggle with this. 
I also think that it's easy to recognize that we need to be receptive to how others want to love us in different ways, but it's a completely different thing to actually receive it. So that's why I want to emphasize this. Folks, we are not a bunch of loners who meet together. We are individuals who make up the body of Christ. All right? We need one another. One more quick thought. Just need to put a little asterisk on this. When selfishness becomes a part of either the giving or the receiving, it's no longer love. Okay? We can't have ulterior motives or make expectations. There simply is a proper way to both give and receive, and it can't be based upon selfishness. So now let's get back to the core point, which is love. Love creates unity. The meaning is not just united in purpose or direction, and it's not conveying the idea that we are one big happy family, although that hopefully is true. Love develops a unity that gives support and binds together. There's some action that's behind this. He even uses the term close-knit, or I'm sorry, we use the term close-knit or fabric of our community, just like he talked about being knitted together. That describes a commitment that people have to one another, right? We live in a close-knit community. Usually you hear about that when something terrible happens in the community. We're very close-knit. I'm not saying that people are wrong. I'm saying what they're describing is, is, is that, that we have this unity. We, we do for one another, right? We talk about the, the fabric, right, woven together, being, being inseparable. And that's the same idea that Paul is trying to convey here. I've shared with you in the past how important my youth group was to me and, and the church in, in my high school days in particular. Um, to go to church and just have that place where you were accepted and encouraged in your faith to kind of go back and, and, you know, have another week at school and another week in life. Uh, that, that was so important to me. And so I hope that, that we can relate to that. So it follows then that the more effectively we love one another, the better we will encourage one another. I mean, that's not rocket science, is it? The more effectively we love each other, the more encouraged we're going to be as a body. Love is the greenhouse for proper spiritual, and I would even add emotional, growth and stability. They go together. So our foundational step that we're talking about right now is that the Colossians have a comforted heart, that we would have a comforted heart, that they would walk beside one another, supporting one another in love. And this, this love is the basis for the next step of what Paul desires for the Colossians. And that next step is the value of knowing Christ. See, Paul is also conflicted that they would fully grasp or gain a strong hold on what it means to be in Jesus. Assurance here is not assurance of salvation specifically. They're not vacillating between, am I a Christian or not? The assurance here is the confidence in what Christ has accomplished for them and in them, or for us and in us, all right? Whenever you hear me talk about the Colossians, you know, we got to bring that back around. This message is to us. This is the confidence of a daily faith that sustains us through whatever we face. So an example might be you're going through a trial of some kind. 
you might not be sitting there thinking, I'm going through a trial. I, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore, right? That might not be where you're at, but you might be struggling with what you know and who you know about Jesus as you're going through this. This assurance is what I believe about Jesus and God's word, how it corresponds or matches how I think and what I do in everyday life. Let me read that again. What I believe about Jesus and God's word corresponds or matches how I think and what I do in everyday life. That's true, isn't it? The reverse of that is also true. Let's take the equation the other direction. How I think and how I live my everyday life corresponds or matches to what I believe about Jesus and God's word. You get it? What we do shows what we truly believe. In and amongst this, he talks about these riches that we are to have when he's talking about this assurance. All right? I, I just like that word. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. It's just all that we have in Jesus, right? It, it, it's rich. There's some value in it. This relates to what they have already experienced and to what Paul has just written to them about it as a reminder. Paul is instructing the Colossians to find their confidence in all the riches of knowing Jesus himself. His comments convey the thought that they can be completely, immediately encouraged in the riches of their understanding. The value of knowing Jesus is, what has he done for me? How has he saved me? What has he saved me from? What do I know about him? Look at his character, all those other things. And that is what he has been conveying through chapter 1. And so it's kind of a little bit of a look back. But he tells them, I want you to be confident in this. So a question, are you living richly or poorly in Christ? Let's look at a couple of verses to support this idea. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. So there's a pattern that we see. And then later on in 1 John, and I really like this verse, this goes so well with this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. Right? Isn't that what we're just talking about? That we have an understanding? And has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And then look at what he adds. I, I couldn't, you know, this, this does not go with what we're talking about specifically, but it goes with the greater topic. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, what's an idol? It's a false teaching. It's a false way. So, in other words, be satisfied in Christ. Be satisfied in that truth. That's where our confidence should be. So are we living richly or living poorly? Are you struggling in your faith, in your experience in Christ? If so, it may be that you are not fully experiencing what Christ has already done for you. Or it may be that you know in your mind what Christ has done for you, 
but you're just not experiencing that at this time. You're, you're not relying upon that. You don't have confidence in that. Paul's inner conflict was that they would experience the value of being fully or completely confident in Christ. And that is what he was trying to build in them, again, through all those things he said about the preeminence of Christ and his greatness. He's creator. He's God. He's the one over the church. All those different things. So let's call this step a confident faith. Right? Which brings us then to the third stage, which is the value of maturity in Christ. Again, on all of this, we're talking about these riches that we have in Jesus. This is not a new subject. This is not a new subject for Paul to cover. And I just want to um, refresh our memories here. If you'll just slide over back a few pages again and go to Colossians chapter 2, I want to look at uh, the latter part of verse 2 and then look at verse 3. Starting with, to the knowledge. To the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this is, like I say, where it gets just a little bit on the subtle side. But before we do that, let's look at the idea that Paul, he desires maturity, and this is not a new subject in this passage, in, in this book. Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1.22, a grounded and steadfast faith. And then Colossians 1.28 not too many verses before this one, right? That we may present every man perfect, mature, in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's goal. He wanted maturity for every believer in Christ. So Paul wants to reinforce the value of having a mature faith. We need to understand what Paul is saying in these two phrases. The first one, again, is to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ. This little word, to, shows a continuing action, right? It's like toward. Paul is building on what we already know. He is moving the Colossians and moving us from a deep love for one another to a full assurance of our understanding of Christ to something more the knowledge of the mystery of God. This mystery refers back to verse 29 in verse 1. This is the mystery of Christ in us. This is the revealing and fulfillment of what was once hidden in Old Testament prophecies, but is now a reality. God is now dwelling with the Gentiles. He's among us. Salvation has broken out. Now he's going to call all kinds of peoples to himself. Now, this is still referring to the assurance we have and things we already understand about Jesus, but it is, it is a coupler. It's, it's a phrase that is marrying the previous to what's coming up next. Paul is saying that part of what conflicts his heart is that he wants them to know what they understand, to know what they know, right? This phrase is a connector. It doesn't necessarily make sense until we add the next phrase. The next phrase is, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This phrase is talking about all the things that remain to be experienced in Christ. Folks, that's an encouragement. Not that we don't have enough in Jesus now, right? We have our salvation and all of that. But there's more. There, there's an experiential knowledge and understanding and just living with the Lord. 
Uh, one of the things that, that I kind of figured out not that long ago, it takes some time, but we all go through stages of life and, and they're going to vary from person to person. And they're, they're going to be, even these, within these stages, they're going to be different for every person. Christ is the same. The word doesn't change. But our experience with him is going to change as we move through life. Right? Let me tell you something. When I was young, I mean really young, right? I had significant cares. Who am I going to play with tomorrow? You know what I mean? Things like that. These are, these are big decisions. <laughs> I'm joking to make a point. As we get older, those decisions, they get a little more complicated, don't they? Right? Situations that we face in life, right? My body hurts a lot more than it used to when I was 16. Right? That's just one of them. Situations in life change. We go from being cared for to, being, to, to caring for others. And on and on it goes. So as we look at those different things, we need to understand that, that, that God is obviously there with us. So as I said, this mystery refers back to verse 29. The mystery is Christ in us. Okay, All that's fulfilled in us. It's still referring to the assurance that we have, but Paul is saying that part of what conflicts his heart is that he wants us to know what we know. I know I've said all that, but I want to bring us back to this next phrase then, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we look ahead to what we have coming in Christ, these are described as treasures that we will discover as we get to know him more and more. What I want us to understand is this. He's wanting us to go toward maturity. Maturity can be reached. It can be reached. There's probably many in this room who are mature believers. But knowledge of Christ is never exhausted. Do you understand that? And I think sometimes we confuse the two. We look at our lives and we say, man, you know, I'm still working on things. Therefore, I'm not mature. No. The question is, are you working on those things in a mature fashion? Right? right? There's still more to gain. There's still more to learn. There's still more to experience. There's still more to do. And so within that maturity, we are still learning. That is where Christ wants all of us. That is where Paul is desiring all of the church to be. All right? Let's go back again to Ephesians chapter 4. Just, we have one more time after this, but I want us to look at this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, in one sense, we can say that's not going to happen until we get to heaven, right? But in another sense, we can say this is something that we are to achieve on earth. It's, it's an expectation, that we are going to be living a mature life in Christ. So what we see here is that Paul desires, and that conflict that's in his heart, is that we find our completeness in Christ. The Ephesian passage helps us to understand that Paul isn't trying to give us a linear pattern of growth. Instead, Paul is encouraging the believer in a purposeful, progressive, and perpetual growth pattern. 
Let's think about it this way. This might, might help if we picture it this way. Um, maturity in Christ is more like a house than a road. We don't just travel from mile to mile to mile, right? In other words, just, just taking this linear path. Instead, our life in Christ is a completed structure that we live in, built on love, built on what Christ has given to us, and built within this idea of maturity. So as we think about what this means to us now, how, how, how do we ap- apply this to our lives? Um, what, I wanna, what I want us to do is, is take the titles that I gave for the different sections and then, and then look at the, the, the character quality that they have. There's, there's, these, there's these three growth patterns. The value of Christ's church, that's a comforted heart, right? The value that we have in Christ, in the body of Christ, is that we're going to be encouraged together. That encouragement is going to keep us away from false teaching. Then there's the value of knowing Christ. And what I talked about that was was a confident faith. When when we know what we know, when when we're experiencing what is in our head, when we take our teaching and we actually put it into practice, that is a confident faith of what we have in Jesus as our Savior and as our God. But then there's also the value of maturity in Christ, a complete wisdom. That's when we're taking the application of our knowledge properly. We're applying it the way we should in a mature fashion, and we're living a consistent Christian life. All right? I want to read what I felt is a really good summary by Richard Mellick in the New American Commentary. He says this, Thus the group, and he's talking about the Colossian church, interacted with each other in love. Each and the whole, so each individual and the entire church, would experience a deeper understanding of Christ. No doubt this understanding was a knowledge of how God works uniquely in the lives of each one so they saw the application of Christ's love in their lives. Okay, keep that idea, the application of Christ's love in their lives, sharing in the experience of others enriches personal experience and deepens the corporate understanding. Okay, let's kind of say that in slightly more layman's terms. When we see how Christ is working with other people, it builds us up. When we see how Christ is working in other people's lives, it actually encourages us in our walk with Jesus. He has a little more to say. The people of Colossae were seeking knowledge. However, the heresy threatened to institute a false or counterfeit knowledge for the riches of the treasures of wisdom found in Christ. If they were to find real knowledge, they had to find it in a commitment to Christ. Their common commitment to Christ and to each other would lead them in love to a more mature understanding of God in his ways in Christ. That's good, isn't it? It's so good, I want to share it with you. It's very good stuff. So, Paul is encouraging them by saying, you love one another because of who you know, Jesus Christ. Be comforted and encouraged in that. You know what you know about Jesus. Be confident in that. But you also know the one, Jesus Christ, who has everything that you will need to know spiritually. 
Keep learning Christ. Be complete in him. Now, let's connect this with what we learned from the text last week about false teaching. That's really, that was really the, the biggest topic last week. I want to do that by first telling you a little story. Now, you probably wouldn't know this about me. It's something that I just want to share. I don't share it with a lot of people. But at one point my, in my life, I had a car collection that would put Larry Sanders' car collection to shame. I had dozens of beautiful matchbox, Hot Wheels, and Johnny Lightning cars. I played with them all the time, but I also took care of them. Crashes happened, but they were always in slow motion, just like on television. <laughs> I didn't like to just bash my cars up. I, 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 I didn't want to mess them up. So we would show our cars off and admire each other's collections. And one day, a much older boy offered to trade me for one of my cars. He wanted to trade me for my Hot Wheels Club Boss Hoss Special Edition uh, Mustang. This car right here. That's sweet, right? I mean, come on. You see, with his persuasive words, he convinced me that I should trade my never-played-with collector car for a common, everyday used one. He deceived me into thinking that his car was better than my Hot Wheels Club, Boss Hoss, Special Silver Edition Mustang. Yes, it's personal. With a silver paint job and black racing stripes and blue tinted windshield. And he traded me for this. <laughs> yeah, just so you know, you're laughing at me. I'm mean, just saying. Yes, it was my five-year-old me, but there's still shame. All right. So, when you think about <laughs> So when you think about that, what happened? Somebody who had a little bit better knowledge than me of life, so to speak, convinced me to trade out what I had, which was better. All right? And, and folks, I know this is going to sound kind of silly, but it's just the way my mind works. I had a lot of cars. My brothers, we all kind of put them in together as, as they got older and all that kind of stuff. And, and basically, we played with our cars and things. But I just got to tell you, Every time, you know, we're pulling our cars out and I grabbed that little station wagon, I remembered the car that I lost because of it. Okay? I mean, it, you know, I knew I had done a dumb thing. So what I want to do now is just go back to Ephesians chapter 4 one more time and look at it in reverse. It's going to give us a little bit of review it's going to give us some application, but it's also going to remind us of this idea of not being fooled. So I'm letting you know this is paraphrased, but this is what's kind of weird. We're looking at it in reverse because it actually is just built differently. But when we change the order, and you, you can turn to Ephesians 4 if you want to, but look at this. Verse 16, knit together and build up in love, right? Verse 15, grow up in all things in Christ. That's sounding parallel now to what we're talking about. Verse 14. Oh, and by the way, no longer tossed around by deceitful teaching. And then verse 13. Till we uh, measure up to the completeness in Christ, a mature man. 
I mean, that's just a literary thing that, that Paul did. Again, his purpose was slightly different. So he starts off with the mature and then talks about how we get there. Here, Paul in Colossians is saying, we're heading toward maturity. We, we want, I, I'm conflicted. There's these things I want you to know, and I'm telling you how to get there, right? But here it is in the same fashion. As I said, Paul was conflicted about the possibility of these people being duped, of being tricked into trading their immense riches in Christ for worthless words and empty philosophies of men. He wanted to convince them that there was no greater than Jesus and there was no knowledge greater than knowing him. By giving us this message, God wants the same for us. So what do we need to do? What do we need to be, so to speak? We need to be comforted and encouraged in his church. That's what our job is to one another. We also need to be a comfort and an encouragement to his church, right? That equally is our job. Be confident in all of the riches of your life in Christ and be complete or mature to receive what Jesus still has in store for you. Now, like I say, the passage is a little subtle, but is basically saying our, our true foundation is the church that we all belong to, which is an assumption of our faith, and how we're helping each other along in this faith journey. I know that's kind of a buzzword, right? You know, our faith journey. It, it really is, though. It's that step-by-step living together in Jesus. Amen. That's then accompanied by, and we, we build upon that with a confidence and understanding, a... a, a um, reliance upon the basics that we know about Jesus. Now, when I say basics, I don't want to make it sound like they're just simple things. They're, they're, they're immense. The, the scriptures call them riches, right? But the things that we already know, let's be assured of those things. Let's place our confidence in them. We have to live it out. If we don't live it out, then what we're saying is, I don't have any confidence, right? We tell a little child, Take my hand to help you cross the street. And the kid looks at us and says, I don't think so. Right? They're saying, I don't have confidence in you to take me across the street. Okay? Or they don't want to go, but just go with my illustration. Okay? So, so you know, we, we need to have confidence in the riches that we have in this life in Christ. But then, again, built on top of that is a maturity. We're, we're working toward that. If we're not there yet, but even when we're there, it is a perpetual thing. We're constantly learning Christ. We're constantly, with wisdom, applying our knowledge of Jesus appropriately to navigate this life. And frankly, cyclically coming back down and helping others to navigate this life. Why? Because we love them. Why? Because we want them to be built up in Christ. Why? Because we want everybody to be mature too. That's the purpose that we have. The purpose isn't how many seats we have filled. The purpose isn't how good this or that is. The purpose isn't how eloquent your pastor is. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> the purpose 
right? Is that we all are mature in Jesus. Never losing the love that we have for one another. It, 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 it has to be there. It's, that's what I'm trying to say. It's steps, but it's, it's growth together. It's just adding on to. So our love for one another is essential. Our application of those riches that we have in Jesus are essential. And then we take all of that and we, we make right decisions on a consistent basis. We live by faith on a consistent basis. Our desire is to glorify Christ on a consistent basis. That's maturity. So you say to yourself, well, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, where I'm at. That's fine. We need to bring you along. We need to bring each other along together. And if we're, if we're honest about things, there's times when we might say, yeah, maybe I've reached a level of maturity, but I didn't act very maturely then. Right? Well, again, that goes back to let's relearn who Jesus is. Let's have our confidence in him and let's make the right kind of choices. Let's live our lives out the way we should. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be a part of your church. What a privilege, Lord, to know. And it's something, Lord, that we've probably already experienced many times over. We need one another. I pray, Father, that we would be willing to even take the risk of relationship, of, of putting ourselves out there, not just with those that we easily can kind of knock around with and, and relate to, but that we'd really stretch ourselves out there so that we develop that, that fabric, that, that knitted together uh, state that Paul encourages us to have. So Lord, as we love one another, I pray that the results really would be that we would glorify you with all that we do. Heavenly Father, you've, you, you know that I, I, I try to be careful not to act like we're just starting off with this. There's, there's, there are demonstrations of love on a continual basis in this body. It's just a matter of keeping on. We thank you for the riches that we have in Jesus that we enjoy today. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be faithful to them. Bless this body, Lord. Protect us. Protect us from false teaching. Protect us from the, the, the twisted, deceptive philosophies that are out there that want to steal what we have, riches, um, treasures that, that, that a price cannot be put on. And we thank you that even though we brought nothing to deserve it, you have lavished those things on us. And so as we just close our time in prayer, we just want to end it with, 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 by saying, praise you, Lord. Thank you. May all honor and glory be to you for the one who actually has the ability to give us this treasure, first the gospel and then this life in Christ. And all this, we just want to thank you in Christ's name. Amen.